Well, let me invite you, if you haven't already, to the passage that was just read to us, Judges chapter 11. Uh, This passage that that we're looking at this morning is verses 1 through 40. Thank you, Cameron, for reading uh, all 40 verses for us. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, uh, we'd love to gift you one. There's some out on the bar provided here. Uh, Please take it as our gift to you. And, And by way of introduction this morning, let me invite you to think about me on this question. Where do you get your understanding, your idea, your perspective, or your thoughts about God? If you're here this morning and you identify as a Christian, someone who believes in the person and work of Jesus, where did you get your idea from God? Where do you continue to learn about your God? If, if you're not a Christian, you're seeking or skeptical about a God or a higher power, where do you get your ideas about a God, the culture an ancient book, a community of people, your parents, television, our movies, spiritual literature. I ask these questions because what we see in Judges 11 is, is a story about a guy named Jephthah, who is a judge over the people of Israel, who is a savior and a deliverer, who is, as verse 29 says, is empowered by the very Spirit of God. But in many ways, he thinks about God, he relates to the God of Israel, the one true God, very similar to the surrounding cultures, very similar to the surrounding nations. He does not interact and treat God and relate to God as God has revealed himself or commanded himself as in his word, in the scriptures. So through the story this morning and the sermon preached, I hope that we will all examine, we will all reflect and consider um, our understanding, our relating, our beliefs about God and, and where that comes from, who we are influenced by. Are we influenced more by culture, more by human understanding? Are we influenced more by ways of related to other idols? Are we influenced by God's word and will as revealed in his holy scriptures? So that's where we're going. That's that's my aim of the sermon this morning. Uh, To recap what we studied last week in Judges chapter 10, in many ways, Judges 10 really prepares the stage for Judges chapter 11. In, In Judges chapter 10, the people of Israel, they They forget the Lord, they forsake him, they serve other gods and all the gods of the surrounding nations. There are seven that are listed, and the people are oppressed and crushed by some of those nations. They're oppressed and crushed by the gods, the nations of the gods who they're serving, and the people cry out to God in a similar fashion and pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Judges. And God reminds the people in Judges chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Monites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you from their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, let them save you in your time of distress. And it seems, as I suggested last week, that the people here are trying to manipulate God, they're trying to use God, they're trying to coerce him because of their situation. It seems as if their first confession to God when they first cried out to God was simply lip service. They don't truly mean what they say, and and God sees right through their hypocrisy. He sees their hearts. He says, I'm not going to save you. I'm not pleased by your facade of contrition. I'm not fooled by your lip service. So the people of God cry out again in verses 15 and 16. The people of God said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. And they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served 
the Lord. So it seems maybe a little bit more like genuine confession and repentance. And the end of verse 16 there says that God became impatient over the misery of Israel, which may have meant that he was moved by their compassion, that he's seeking to show mercy and love and deliver them through a judge. And the end of Judges 10, the people of Israel, the the leaders of Gilead, are saying to one another, who is this man who will fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And that kind of sets the stage for where we're going this week in Judges chapter 11. Verse 1 describes and introduces our man Jephthah, this judge, who is described as a Gileadite, who is described as a mighty warrior, but he's also described as the son of a prostitute. And this background creates uh, some tension between Jephthah's dad's wife, who bears him sons. So this different woman, other than the prostitute, bears him sons, and they have more of a right to the inheritance. They see Jephthah as a threat, so they, they drive him out. And they say in verse 2, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And Jephthah flees from his brothers. He lives in this land that's called Tob or Tob. And the narrator describes him as hanging around worthless fellows. And when the, the narrator uses that word, term worthless fellows, it means morally reprehensible, morally despicable or disgraceful. And they, they're collecting around Jephthah, and he's kind of being their leader. So he's not hanging around a good crowd. Well, the Ammonites make war against Israel, and the Israelites, they seek to find Jephthah. They, they know he's a mighty warrior. They want to come and get him. They say in verse 6, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. So this worthless man, this, who's hanging around worthless fellows, it's interesting when you think about, this is the same phrase that was used to describe the people that Abimelech hung around. And Jephthah kind of calls them on, hey, why are you guys calling out to me now? He says in verse 7, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And this interaction between the elders of Gilead and Jephthah should remind us of that interaction I just read in Judges chapter 10. That it seems as if the the elders of Gilead, similar to the people of Israel, are coming to Jephthah, or coming to God like they did in Judges 10, and it's not out of a love for Jephthah, it's not out of a changed heart, it's simply because of their situation. It's kind of forced their hand. And I think the narrator, in enlisting Judges 11, right after Judges 10, is trying to show us this comparison, this parallel. Jephthah calls them out on it, and he asks them. And the elders, they say, well, this is why we've turned to you, that you may go with us and fight against us and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah says, if you bring me home and f- to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your head. So Jephthah wants to be the leader. He wants to be their military uh, leader of the army. He wants to be their head. He wants to be their chief. Both of these terms he uses as, as what he's kind of holding out for. I want to be head and leader. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah in verse 10, the Lord will be witness between us if you do what you say. And they went out, out of Gilead and the people made Jephthah their head and leader. And Jephthah spoke all the words before him at Mizpah. So it's important to realize here that, that Jephthah is a judge that isn't clearly described as being raised up by the Lord. In, in other instances of the judges throughout the book, the judges are described up as being ra- God raises up a judge. Yet here it seems as if uh, 
he's just apparently just affirmed by the people, that he's made head and leader just by the people, possibly and, and clearly here, uh, without a clear reference to God raising him up. I think that's interesting as we think about how Judges progresses with the stories of the judges. But after Jephthah's made leader and head, he, he sends a message to the king of the Ammonites. And I'll summarize, summarize it like this. This is what verse 12 through 28 is, is all about. It describes this back and forth correspondence with the king of the Ammonites and Jephthah. And, and Jephthah asks, why are you guys coming out against me? What have I done to you guys that, that I would deserve this response? It's also important to notice that, that Jephthah is already starting to act like the head, the chief, or the king. Right? He's, he's referring to the king of the Ammonites as if he is an equal, and he's using language in verse uh, 13, excuse me, verse 12, when, Je- when Jephthah is talking to the king of the Ammonites, why have you come to fight against my land? Okay, that is language that a king would use, that he's kind of just claiming this land as his personal property. This is interesting as, as Jephthah is just claiming this right and, and becoming king, and he writes to the, the king of the Ammonites as he's an equal. He says, what's going on here? The king of the Ammonites responds in verse 13, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took my land. Now restore it peacefully. So this land is not yours, it's mine, you took it, and I want it back. And what the king of the Ammonites is referring to here is is all the way back when Israel was rescued out of the hand of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh, when they were freed from Egyptian captivity, and and Moses was leading the people from Egypt to the land that God had promised them. And the king believes that Israel took his land unjustly or unfairly, and he he wants it back. But Jephthah reminds the king of the Ammonites, as he responds back to him in verse 15, that this is not actually what happened. This is not what history, uh, the accurate history has foretold. It says, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. When they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And the people of Israel sent messengers both to the king of Edom and to the king of Moab, but both of those kings would not let the Israelites pass through their land. So Israel sends messengers to another king, the king, this king named Sihon, or Sihon, king of the Amorites, and says, please let us pass through your country. But this guy doesn't let him go through. And not only does he not let him go through, but he... He thinks that, there might, that Israel might be a threat. He doesn't trust Israel, so he makes war against the Israelites. And it says in verse 21 that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all the people of the land of Israel and defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country. So Jephthah is arguing with the king of the Ammonites that this is not your land. It was the land of the Amorites who we defeated back with Moses, therefore it's our land. And if you're curious about where this story comes from in the, in the history of the Bible, you can look in Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 2. Uh, but then, so Jephthah makes this historical argument. He also makes you, you, what you could call a theological argument in verse 24. He says, will you not possess what Chemosh, Chemosh, I'm not exactly sure how to say these names, so you just say it boldly and accurately, I guess. You guys might think I know what I'm saying. Your God to give you possess, and all the Lord our God has given us to possess, we will possess. So he's essentially arguing if your God is strong enough, if your God is powerful enough, wouldn't he have had this land and given you this land? With the Lord, the God of Israel, has given us this land. He also then reminds them that, that Balak didn't attack Israel. He never contended and go to war with them. And are you any better than this king? Jephthah also argues that 
he tells the king of the Ammonites, man, we've been here 300 years. Why have you not attacked us or contended with us all this time? It seems ample time to, to get your land back if in fact it really was yours. So therefore, Jephthah concludes in verse 27, I've not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon, but the king of the Ammonites had not listened to the words of Jephthah he had sent him. So the king is not listening, and here we go to war. Jephthah tried to resolve it peacefully, uh, but we're going to war. The king of the Ammonites is not listening. In verse 29, the spirit of the Lord is described as coming upon Jephthah. He's passing through Gilead and through Manasseh. He's getting ready to fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah makes his vow in verse 30. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. You can see in your Bibles, and in my Bible, especially right above verse 29, this section is described as Jephthah's tragic vow, and we'll soon find out uh, how tragic this vow really is. After making this vow, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites, and the narrative describes that the Lord gives the enemies of Israel into his hand. So victories is given to Jephthah. The Lord does this. The narrative describes that Jephthah strikes 20 cities, and the, and the Ammonites were subdued under the people of Israel. So the Ammonites, the people who had oppressed and crushed Israel, are defeated. They're subdued. God has granted great victory. It, we should get ready to start the the bells and the dancing and the, the feast. God has granted victory. All is one, right? Happy day. Here we go. And then we come to verse 34. Just the comes to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter comes out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Okay, this, is the way that, this is the way that someone would return and greet a war hero. Tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, which is a sign of mourning, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Surprisingly, the daughter, I mean, the narrator doesn't describe, the, the daughter doesn't seem to put up a fight, or, I mean, she acts very, like, valiantly here, I think. Daughter says, honor your vow, Dad. You made this vow to the Lord. Just please let me weep for two months. Let me weep my virginity. Let me go up to the mountains and weep. And Jephthah honors her request in verse 38. She goes away for two months. She weeps her for her virginity. And in verse 39, it says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. All right, so a seemingly great story of deliverance that God brings to through Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord empowers him, clothes him. They grant victory. The Ammonites are subdued. And then the story ends in this peculiar way about Jephthah honoring a vow that he made and sacrificing his own daughter. And, and that's how Judges 11 ends. Now, the story of Jephthah continues in verse 12, but for now, we're going to stop the story and examine what does this story teach us. 
So we look at all of verse, all of 40 verses and all of chapter 11. What is this story proclaiming or describing or teaching us? What can we learn from the story that, that although God grants victory over his enemy, the story ends in this horrendous and devastating way. That because of Jephthah's foolish and unfortunate vow, he sacrifices his own child, his own daughter. Jephthah, who is described as not having any other kids. Therefore, his, his lineage, his ancestry, his family tree would just stop here. So although Jephthah was head, he was made leader, no dynasty, no ancestry, no lineage. He would have no grandson or granddaughter to succeed him. Also, you think about his daughter who would die a virgin, which in that historical cultural context would have been the worst, I mean, the worst thing for a woman. Dying a virgin was disgraceful. To die childless was disgraceful. And maybe we can somehow relate to to Jephthah's daughter because like in our culture, to die a virgin would be a horrendous thing, right? I mean, we have movies about it, making fun of virginity and uh, for us, it would be so horrible that someone would die without experiencing the, the pleasures of sex. Right? But our culture views sex as transactional and uh, not really need, needed for a committed relationship, where in, in this time, sex was viewed as building community and building family. So it would have been horrible for her not to experience being able to raise a family and have a lineage. At any rate, when we think about this horrible ending, this story should cause us to pause and reflect. What is God trying to teach us? And this is the way we want to answer that question of, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And after working through the story, it seems as if God is is not very active. He doesn't seemingly have a very central role in the story. He he may send his spirit to empower Jephthah. He, He may give the Ammonite people into Jephthah's hand. But when you look at the overall story of Judges 11, you see the centerpiece or the focal point is not really even the outcome of the battle. It's not the outcome of the war. The, the victory against the Ammonites doesn't seem like a central part. It seems more like a side note. The focal point seems to be more of Jephthah's tragic vow. The narrator also goes into great depths to explain this interaction between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites and how well Jephthah knew the history of the people of Israel. So taken into context in the book of Judges and how the story comes right after Judges 10, I believe the story proclaims this truth about God and his relationship with his people. Namely, God does not relate to his people the way other idols and false gods relate to the surrounding peoples and cultures. God is holy. His relationship with his people is holy, is set apart, is unique. It's different than how any other god or deity should be related to Another way of saying this is when the people of God relate to God in similar ways of the pagan idols or deities or worship of God is is more influenced by surrounding cultures and customs than by God's word and will as revealed in his scriptures, tragedy occurs, devastation occurs. It does not bode well for God's people. And the reality and truth is, I think, most most clearly seen in Jephthah's vows in two different fronts. Number one, just the reality of him making the vow itself. And two, what he promised in the vow. So one, when you look at the vow, it seems as if when when Jephthah makes this vow that he's he's trying to coerce or control or manipulate God. Like he believes in making this vow, he can somehow 
uh, manipulate or use or control God to serve his means or his ends. And this would have been very similar to how the other pagan cultures and, and nations would have treated their gods, that his favor has to be earned, that the favor of the gods has to be uh, earned through attempts at like showing your dedication and your commitment to that deity through rash vows and costly sacrifices. So Jephthah may have believed that God had needed to be impressed. He needed to be controlled. And in reality, the scriptures teach us that God is completely sovereign, that God would have brought victory regardless of this harsh and foolish vow. The sovereignty and providence of God is the foundation of true faith and should have caused Jephthah to realize that rash vows are worthless, senseless, and futile because God will accomplish all things according to his perfect plan and will. God is not manipulated by human dictation. He is not controlled by the actions of men and women. One pastor said it like this, the coming of the Spirit of the Lord upon Jephthah, his empowerment, should have been the guarantee of victory. But Jephthah's vow will undermine everything. God's word is very clear. His law is very clear that God's favor, his grace, his goodness, his favor is not earned. That nothing humanity can do, there's nothing humanity can do to achieve it. God sovereignly determines who will receive it, and he gives it freely regardless of how deserving the recipient is. So what this vow shows us is that Jephthah is more influenced by outside beliefs, outside practices, than true, right, accurate thoughts of God as he has revealed himself in his word. A second problem with the vow that is what Jephthah vows, the very thing that he promised. The content are the promise in the vow. When Jephthah says in verse 30, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, you'll notice that there are some footnotes um, in the phrase whatever, and there are a footnote in the phrase it. And in my Bible, it says that that phrase whatever, the word whatever, can also mean whoever. The word it can also mean him, referring to a person. So most commentators and scholars believe that Jephthah actually had a human sacrifice here in mind. Animals most likely didn't live in the houses of the people at this time, and, and also, since usually animals do not come out to greet a war hero returning to battle, Jephthah most likely was offering up a human sacrifice as a part of his vow. So I don't know if he was seeking to offer up his wife or a servant, but it seems as if Jephthah was offering a human sacrifice to the Lord, and that's what he was doing. And this was a practice of the Moabite and the Ammonite people. This was a way in which they worshipped their gods. Molech and Chemosh, they offered human sacrifices. And when they offered a human sacrifice, it was their way of demonstrating to their God, I am completely dedicated to you. That's why they offered human sacrifices. However, if Jephthah knew his word, or if we know the word, the God of Israel, the one true God, hated this practice. There's laws against human sacrifice in the Torah. God doesn't accept human sacrifice. He tells his people, don't worship me the way other gods worship their gods. He says in Deuteronomy 12, 31, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they, referring to other nations, have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. 
Leviticus 18.21 has a similar warning and command that God hates human sacrifice. He does not accept it and don't do it. It's an abominable practice. So, but Jephthah seems that he can serve and worship the God of Israel similar to other pagan gods like Molech or uh, Chemosh as, as listed here. Jephthah also believes that his vow can't be broken, it seems like. And although making vows was a serious matter and they weren't supposed to be broken, in Leviticus 27, God lists out rules for redeeming a vow. In other words, Jephthah could have redeemed his daughter. Jephthah could have fulfilled this vow in a different way as Leviticus 27 lists out for us. And this is interesting. As I was reflecting upon this, that the narrator goes into such great depths to describe how well Jephthah knew the history of Israel. I mean, you see, all, verses 12 through 28 describe that interaction between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites, and he knew what happened. He knew history, yet he is seemingly ignorant and lacks understanding and knowledge of God's word that could have saved this situation from happening. So in Jephthah's foolishness, the vow, I believe, shouldn't have been made, and what he vowed shouldn't have happened. And even if his daughter came out Uh, and he felt like he had to fulfill his vow, he could have, knowing God's word, fulfilled it in a different way. This is all kind of foolishness and tragedy wrapped up in this vow. And all of this shows us that God does not relate to his people the way other idols and false gods relate to the surrounding peoples and cultures. And when God's people relate to God in similar ways of relating to pagan idols and deities and, and their worship of the God of Israel is more influenced by the culture and by the surrounding nations versus God's will and word as revealed in his scriptures, devastation happens. Tragedy happens. It does not bode well for God's people. And given Jephthah's blemished background, he's the son of a prostitute, given Jephthah's uh, affirmation by humanity instead of God, given Jephthah's foolish, rash vow, Jephthah clearly points us forward to the need of a better savior. Jephthah points us forward to the need for a good king, a wise king, a faithful king, a a discerning ruler, a righteous savior. And this is how we'll seek to answer the second question in our handout, the the question we've been seeking to answer each week. When we look at how the story connects to the larger story of the Bible, we see that that Judges as a whole and and Jephthah specifically points to the need for a good king. It's preparing the way for what we see in, in First and Second Samuel and preparing the way for a king named David. But it also points even for, for the, farther forward than that in the need for a perfect and eternal salvation that only comes through King Jesus. It is ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. Jephthah's flaws and his foolishness make it clear that God's people need Jesus And as a way of praising Jesus, as a way of lifting up Jesus, let me uh, do that now by showing how much better Jesus is than Jephthah. Jesus is the far better Jephthah. Jephthah was born of a prostitute. Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. Jesus was from the line of King David. Jephthah was from the line of a prostitute. Jephthah was driven out of his father's inheritance. Jesus was sent to bring others into his father's inheritance. 
Jephthah worshiped God sinfully according to the pagan gods and false customs. Jesus worshiped God perfectly and righteously. He lived a life without sin. Jephthah's offering of his daughter as a burnt offering brings devastation, the end of a lineage, the termination of a family. Jesus' offering on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God brings forgiveness of sins, brings adoption and a new eternal multi-ethnic family. It creates a new lineage of eternal line where anyone who trusts in the person and work of Jesus can be called a son and daughter of God. That's what Jesus brings. Jephthah conformed to the surrounding culture, leading to tragedy and heartache and death. Jesus creates a culture of life and joy and forgiveness and freedom and redemption. In Jephthah's foolishness, he sacrificed his own daughter, his only child. Yet in God's wisdom and sovereignty, he sacrifices his own son whom he loved, his only son, so that if anyone would believe in him, they would not die but have everlasting life. And God sends his son into the world in this great act of love, and he grants his people repentance and faith, and he sends his Holy Spirit to clothe them, to be upon them, not because they deserve it, not because they've made a vow, not because they've earned it through hard work and sacrifice, not because they can manipulate or control God. God saves, works, seals, redeems by grace alone. There's nothing so unique, so scandalous, so compelling, I believe, as the grace of God. Jephthah shows the foolishness of misguided worship and understanding of God. Jesus shows the wisdom of God has revealed the very nature and image of God himself. That's how I believe there is love and connects to the larger story of the Bible. Jesus is the greater Jephthah. Jephthah shows us our need for Jesus. Jephthah's failure in conforming to culture points forward to Jesus who lived in perfect accordance to God and to his word and to his holiness. Jesus who creates a counterculture, a unique culture of godliness and God-fearing worship and eternal life and restoration. So when we seek to answer that third question we've been answering each week, the question of what admonition or exhortation does this story offer? In other words, what is this story warning us not to do and what is this story calling us to do? Simply put, I believe the story calls us to be conformed to Christ instead of conformed to culture. The story calls us to be conformed or to be in tuned, to be shaped and affected by Christ rather than shaped by our culture. The story of Judges 11 warns us about being affected and formed by surrounding culture and pagan practices more than being shaped from God's word and his will as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, a way this can happen can be in the very way that we read the Word of God itself. And uh, I wanted to give an example of something that happened this very week. As I was studying this passage and um, as a way to kind of invite you guys in and show you guys what happens as sermons are prepared in the life of the Mountain Church, I came across, I came across as I was studying Judges 11, a small group of commentators and scholars who believed that Jephthah didn't actually sacrifice his daughter. And they, they argued that, you know, because of maybe a seemingly ambiguity, it doesn't clearly say he sacrificed her, even though I think it does. I mean, he did do her as he vowed. There were many scholars who argued that, well, this Jephthah actually didn't sacrifice her. He, he simply just dedicated to the, her to the Lord for a, li a life of virginity 
and serving in the temple. So this is something I had never I hadn't heard before. So I asked people that have Bible commentaries and and know God's word. I asked Will and Nathan, "Hey guys, ever heard this? What do you think about this?" Um, I don't. I want to be clear that you know maybe I'm maybe this is kind of like the right interpretation, and maybe I'm off base on thinking that he actually sacrificed her. Will and Nathan, what do you guys think? And and Will says, "Well, you know, I've heard that." But um, I think he killed her. And I'm, I'm 90% sure. I mean, I'm 90-10. He, he really killed her. And I asked Nathan, and Nathan goes, huh, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm 60-40. Which is not a knock on Nathan. It's just he hadn't done much study yet into the, the text. And he starts reading church history and commentaries, and he discovers that it wasn't until the Middle Ages that this argument that Jephthah actually didn't kill her comes about. He starts doing more reading, realizing how it's, seemingly people trying to soften the harshness and what the word of God actually says. And the next day he sends Will and I a text and he's a hundred zero. <laughs> he comes to this conclusion. It seems like we want to soften and, and make, uh, become comfortable with our interpretation of scripture at times. We want to soften the hard parts of the Bible. And he, he says this, I quote, it's so out of place in this instant. The direct interpretation is that he killed his daughter. This fits in the context and overall context of Judges. Judges continually gets worse and worse. Jephthah's act of killing his daughter fits in line with the downward spiral of morality in the book. So there we have it, right? Hey, on a side note, this is a great quality and characteristic of Nathan is his humility. Um, Nathan, thank you for letting me use you as an illustration. But on a side note, I think this is also just a Anytime I can throw this in, it's a side note to see the importance of community and understanding and seeing God's word clearly. I couldn't help but think, how different would the story have been if Jephthah would have just asked a couple people that knew God and knew his word, hey, thinking about making a vow to God about sacrificing something? What do you guys think? Right? Maybe they would have said, eh, not a good idea. Right? The point of this illustration and story being we cannot allow culture, we cannot allow our desire for comfort or, or how we might like God to respond to affect the very way we read the scriptures themselves. We must come to the text and try our best to allow the word to speak for itself and if it has hard truths, to learn from them and be okay with them and not try to soften them. We must seek to be conformed to Christ versus shaped and affected by or culture. It's an ironic in this very story of this, I think, this message that God is teaching us that even the way that people read the story, they're doing the very thing that the story is warning against. Conforming to culture, softening the message of the Bible. And when we look at the story of Jephthah, we, we can be appalled, and I hope we are, by the horrendous sacrifice of Jephthah of his own daughter, offering her as a burnt offering. That should shock us, that should cause, you know, disturbance in our spirits and in our souls about the evil that we see in the story. But it should also cause us to reflect about what are ways in which our own blind spots, our own ways in which we have been more influenced by the culture than we realize can be deceived in which other people of other cultures would look into us and be shocked by the ways we are being influenced by the culture. Does that make sense? Tim Keller says it like this in his book, Judges for You. It is easy for us to see how Jephthah ignored what the scriptures 
the first five books of our Bible, told him about who God is and how sacred human life is. How instead he listened to pagan culture about God and about life. But surely many people at other times and places would be astonished at, for example, how much money Christians in Western culture spend on themselves. Jephthah makes us look at ourselves and ask, what enormous blind spots do I have? If we really want to know the answer to that question, we will be regular and humble Bible readers. In other words, when we think about our lives and the standard of living even we think we feel we deserve, who influences that? What influences that? We live in a culture that's consumed with self-discovery, that's consumed with self-promotion. We want to be self-ruled, self-taught, self-governed, autonomous individuals who decide what we want, when we want, how we want it. We live in a culture that, we, that views our time, our hobbies, our families, our materials as things that we earn, we deserve. No one gets to tell me how to spend them or when I spend them or how I steward my time, how I spend my time. This line of thinking has easily, I think, seeped into the church and in Christianity as the church conforms more to culture than to Christ in believing that Christianity is basically about catering to ourselves. When we look through the Gospels and we see that the Gospel, the message of Jesus, is about abandoning ourself. David Platt says it like this in his book, Radical. In the American dream, where self reigns as king or queen, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. As a result, we desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. We live in a society, for example, about identity that teaches what's most important is your truth, is discovering what's deep down inside and asserting it above all other outside forces, our, our truths, our forces. I've, I've, saw, I've seen this clearly in a couple movies that my daughter Addison has watched recently that she loves. One movie called Frozen and one movie called Moana. Anyone familiar with those movies? Okay, Moana is a movie of a, a, um, a princess, a daughter of a chief. She doesn't want to be called a princess. She's a princess the daughter of a chief who has this call from within that she's not, she's not like anyone around her. And regardless of what her culture tells her, regardless of her parents, she needs to assert that call and, and identity above all else. That's the kind of the premise of Moana. And, and Disney's doing this. I mean, pop culture is doing this. These are just two examples. But Frozen does this very clearly as well. Maybe you've been familiar with that song, Let It Go, as Cameron, would you, you just start singing it? In the song, she says this, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong. Does that sound like judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes? I'm free. Let it go, let it go. I am one with the wind and sky. Let it go, let it go. You'll never see me cry. Here I stand. And here it goes on. The Christian idea of identity is very counter to this, isn't it? It's not about finding who you are. It's not about discovering who you are. It's about finding who you are in Christ, laying yourself down, picking up your cross and following after Jesus. 
what if we get real specific in thinking about our context and outside of the greater Seattle area and maybe a suburban neighborhood, how does our culture view, for example, their home? It seems, I've only been in Des Moines four years, maybe four years, three or four, that the homes are viewed as these safe, secluded sanctuaries of silence and solitude. A retreat to my little heaven on earth. Don't, don't want anyone in. And yet, Paul urges the church in Rome, be hospitable. In other words, invite people into your home. That's what the word there is used. And, and I think a, a way that we can glorify and serve Jesus with our homes is that our homes are not viewed as these things that we retreat to, that we keep people out of. They're viewed as hubs of gospel ministry. Hubs of welcoming others and serving others and, and showing the hospitality that we have seen in the gospel. So are we influenced more by culture or more by Christ? The way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time. The other thing is even especially true for those who are familiar with church culture. Those who are familiar with Christianese. Those who are familiar with how the people in the American church and, and church as a whole can operate. We have to be weary of how church culture is against Christ's culture. For example, in much of my experience in the church, sexual sins have been clearly listed, labeled, and talked about as bad, right? So I, I grew up knowing sex outside of marriage, bad. It's taboo. It's good teaching on moral purity. But what about teachings on selfish ambition and pride? What about warnings of materialism? What about warnings of wealth and a taboo not being having no desire in caring for the poor, having no desire in caring for the orphan and the widow and those who are less fortunate around you? It's like we're more content. We want people to be celibate, but we don't really care if they're greedy or if they have a heart that's callous toward the poor. Maybe your experience is similar to mine in that aspect. We must be wise and discerning and humble in our efforts to discover how much of culture has affected us, even church culture. That's not in line with God's word and will as revealed in his scriptures. My brothers and sisters, let's be warned from Judges 11 about the dangers of being more influenced by the surrounding culture and false ideas about God than with God as he truly is. Let's seek to be conformed above all things to Christ. Let's seek to build our identity upon the truths of the gospel and seek to apply Jesus' teaching, however radical they may be in our culture, however uncomfortable they might make us. Let's not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Let's put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And let's be renewed in the spirit of our minds to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? Let's pray.